one of the uh, things that can devastate uh, a village and devastate an athlete's chances of competing is actually illness and particularly infection. There was a large amount of planning that went into being able to identify infection early, uh, being able to uh, manage that infection, isolate uh, those athletes from other athletes, uh, both within their team and also within their sport, and then to, where possible, uh, once they'd been uh, through the, the quarantine period, allow them to then return and actually hopefully compete. Welcome to UQ Changemakers, a podcast series where we interview some of the most influential and inspiring members of the UQ community. My name is Belinda McDougall. And I'm Katie Rowney. In this episode, we chat with sports medicine expert, Dr. Anita Green. Anita is a general practitioner and a part-time senior lecturer at UQ and was the chief medical officer for Gold Coast 2018 Commonwealth Games. Anita, welcome. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Well, first of all, we've got to ask, what is the role of the Chief Medical Officer at the Commonwealth Games? So it's a fairly broad remit and you're responsible for the medical aspects and also the anti-doping program at the Commonwealth Games. The medical aspects include the obvious things that we all think about, so treating obviously athletes to make sure that they can perform and if they've been injured, but also being responsible for the large number of uh, officials who come with those teams, the spectators while they're actually attending the events, uh, the workforce uh, that's actually uh, present in particularly the Commonwealth Games Village uh, to make sure that they're uh, well and there's certainly risks of things like infection and so on. And then also the more broad uh, public health aspects of uh, a Commonwealth Games where you have the risk of infection and uh, obviously illness that needs to be treated. So um, when you're thinking about it, it's about uh, the athletes and the, the broader Commonwealth Games family that you're responsible for, the uh, hospital and health services and the ambulance services that then uh, the host country has already set in place that we then interface with the Games. And then uh, finally, we work obviously with uh, uh, the ASADA, the Australian Sports Anti-Doping Agency, to provide uh, an anti-doping program uh, to ensure that the, the Games are a clean event for athletes to compete in. Sounds like a huge role and obviously you weren't the only medical officer there. So how many staff did you have to help fulfil those duties? So, and I, I agree, the most important thing is that this is not one person doing the work. And I, I think it's really important that you acknowledge that this is a whole team effort. And that's what sports medicine's about. And that's what I really enjoy about sports medicine. It's about a team that works behind the team. So uh, we have a small group of, of people who are paid to uh do the work to plan. Uh, so it's very much, I guess, a, a project management uh, approach to to planning this and ramping up the work over uh, a four-year period to plan for the Games, uh, just like all the other areas were planned with security and transport and so on. And then at Games time, we uh, had a team of 1,400 medical team volunteers. Uh, and that group included uh, people who you might obviously think of, such as sports doctors and emergency physicians, uh, general practitioners, but also uh, sports physiotherapists, podiatrists, nurses, dentists, optometrists, radiologists and radiographers, uh, and uh, a range of other skills. I think I mean, we had 20 different skill sets that we recruited for. And those uh, people in the main were uh, volunteers who left their own jobs, took their annual leave and came and volunteered for us uh, at the Gold Coast or at any of the other venues up and down the coast uh, during the games period, also in the pre-period, in the training period as well. Sounds incredible, but how do you even get picked for this role? I guess I've been involved in sports medicine for 
uh, about 20 years. So I've always had an interest in sport, I, uh, swimming. I uh, enjoyed um, I just competing and challenging yourself and training. I wasn't an elite athlete and I was never going to be an elite athlete. But when I uh, then studied medicine, uh, I thought the best way to perhaps combine that interest in, in sport, and, and I love many sports, uh, and the, the competition that people are involved in and the, um, I guess, the challenge of getting yourself the best you possibly can be to perform at, at the right time. What role does medicine or sports medicine, and by that I don't just mean clinical medicine, but also the physios and podiatrists and other people as well that combine with that. How do you actually um, work in your love of sport and also your profession of medicine? And that's obviously uh, the role of sports medicine. So I uh, joined an organisation called Sports Medicine Australia, uh, which is a professional body for um, clinicians involved in sports medicine and also researchers and scientists. And I did a course which was run jointly by Sports Medicine Australia and the College of General Practitioners way back, mm, in fact, more, more like 25 years ago, I think now. And that it all went on from there. I did a master's of sports medicine at uh, through the University of New South Wales. That was the only um, place that was offering that. And since then, I've been involved here at the University of Queensland uh, in being a uh, co-convener of the postgraduate sports medicine program for medical practitioners, which is run here out of the uh, School of Human Movement and Nutrition Sciences here at UQ. So you're working with a huge community there. There's a lot of athletes, there's a lot of spectators. What kind of pressure and responsibility is on you to keep them all happy and healthy? So I think the most important thing to remember is that you're part of a team. And we have wonderful health services here in, in Queensland and Australia generally. We have very experienced clinicians. And despite you know what people do grumble and complain about our public health systems, uh, we do have some of the best in the world here. So the whole point is not to reinvent the wheel. We already have wonderful public health and we've certainly got fantastic support over a three-year period with the public health unit, particularly down on the Gold Coast, but also across the state of Queensland, with the Queensland Health generally and the, and the, and the office of the uh, state health officer, Jeanette Young, uh, with all of the hospitals up and down the coast here. And we had access and also uh, regular communication twice daily with the hospitals running from uh, northern New South Wales, or, Wales all the way up to, to Cairns, because we had the most geographically spread uh, group of venues, that I, I believe, that's ever been used for a Commonwealth Games, uh, running over, you know, almost a couple of thousand kilometres there from, you know, venues from Coolangatta to Cairns. So we had wonderful health services that we already just bolt on. It's about how do we actually interface with those groups appropriately? How do we plan jointly with them? So the Queensland Ambulance Service, Queensland Health, all of the major tertiary facilities up and down the coast and the public health system. So they were our partners and you get to learn to uh, know those people over a period of uh, two to three years working with them so that you use their excellence and their knowledge. You don't have to be uh, responsible for all of that. Also a wonderful, dedicated, small team that I worked with uh, down at the uh, Goldock or the, Go the Gold Coast Commonwealth Games Organising Committee headquarters at Ashmore at uh, the Gold Coast with people with skills from emergency medicine, sports medicine, paramedics, nurses and people who were very skilled in logistics and planning. So you are part of a, you're a small cog in a, in a large team and we're all responsible then for making sure everything works well. And I think that's the best way to, to look at it. But there certainly are times when you do feel um, a bit worried whether things are actually going to go right and you don't really know until the Games actually comes around. So it's a long period. It's four years in the planning uh, until the Games are on and then they're 11 days and then and it's over very quickly. Did you find 
because you yourself are an athlete and you have that that sporting spirit and that competitive spirit. Did you get attached to any of the athletes you worked with? Did you feel like their wins were sort of a part, partly your wins as well or anything like that? So I've never been an elite athlete, but I've always followed the Australian swimming team since I was, you know, six or seven. And that was swimming was my, it was my sport. So I, I did go to the swimming competition three nights down at the pool, three of the six nights of finals. And it was wonderful to see the, the swimming team and the vast majority of the Australian swimming team swimming at their best. So I did feel really engaged there, more as a spectator, in the evenings watching uh, most of that sport because it's wonderful to see those um, athletes throughout their, their lifetime and also to actually have been... Uh, I was involved in the swimming in 2006 at the pool in Melbourne where I did most of the sports coverage there as well. So it was wonderful to actually have that experience again, even though I wasn't sitting there doing the coverage. I had members of my team doing the sports medicine coverage on the pool deck. It was wonderful just to be there and actually, I guess, be a bit of a spectator as well when it wasn't too busy to be involved and to actually share in um, their their successes vicariously uh, and cheer them on, particularly that last final night and those final two events, those medley relays, where it was just so close and, and just amazing to see the, the grit and determination of both the men's and women's medley uh, relay teams to actually win in that final half second of the of the event. So I did enjoy that uh, as an Australian, I guess, but also there were individual athletes that uh, I I got to know athletes who had, did develop an illness that we were particularly concerned about, athletes who, who had an infection, but we were able to then have them well enough uh, and able to safely compete from an infection control point of view. That's something they'd trained for seven, eight, nine, ten years of their life. They were able to still then go and compete and, a, and an intercurrent illness didn't prevent them from competing. Uh, we also, I guess, one of the most touching things is to see athletes who come from countries with very limited resources. They have very limited uh, training facilities. They have very limited medical and physiotherapy uh, services and they come along and you cannot believe how how extraordinary they are and, and how amazing they would actually be if they actually had the support that, that some of our athletes have. So it's wonderful to be able to, I guess, have some of our clinical team, I don't take responsibility for that, but some of our wonderful uh, physios or, or medical clinicians or, or radiologists who could assist them in, in diagnosing a problem they had and managing that and assist them to actually compete at their best uh, on the day they had their, their event. And that was fantastic. But it really makes you feel um, humble to see that some people can actually get to the top of their sport with very, very limited resources. They're very talented and very determined. Uh, it makes you feel very lucky to live in a country like Australia. So you touched on the challenges um, coordinating such a big event. Could you tell us what sort of things you planned for? Because um, I can imagine while there's injury, but there's other things like gastro bugs that could be devastating at such a big event. Yeah, so obviously when people think about treating athletes at a Commonwealth Games or any other sporting event, they're generally thinking about the sporting injuries that those athletes can have, so either preventing them or, or treating as something that they've had a niggling injury there to make sure they can compete or treating them after they've had an injury. And that's what 70 to 75% of the work is uh, in the polyclinic, which is the large uh, medical facility which is built inside the uh, athlete's village to treat the athletes throughout the Games. But one of the uh, things that can devastate uh, a village and devastate an athlete's chances of competing is actually illness and particularly <laughs> infection. So there was a large amount of planning uh, that went into being able to identify infection early, uh, being able to 
manage that infection, isolate uh, those athletes from other athletes, uh, both within their team and also within their sport, and then to, where possible, uh, once they've been uh, through the, the quarantine period, allow them to then return and actually hopefully compete. Uh, and we were very um, pleased that a lot of that planning worked extraordinarily well. Again, I, I thank sincerely. Uh, this is not my area of expertise. Uh, this is about working with colleagues who have all of these skill sets. So public health, infection control, uh, particularly the the, uh, the doctors in the public health units and, and the infectious health uh, unit down at the Gold Coast University Hospital and Gold Coast Public Health. Uh, they uh, did most of the planning for this and then were available on tap for us 24 hours a day throughout the uh, the period of the Games and the, the lead up to the Games to make decisions around how we would assist these athletes and manage these athletes and prevent infection from spreading. So we had early uh, detection of things like influenza A and B and norovirus, uh, which can certainly devastate a Games. We know that there were there were major problems at the uh, 19, 20. 17 IAAF, so the International Athletics Federation World Championships in London, and also at the Pyeongchang 2018 Winter Olympics, where norovirus created considerable concern with athletes being unable to compete, particularly some of the sprinters there, and also in in Pyeongchang, where they had to actually isolate something like a thousand of their security guards and actually bring in the military to actually prevent that infection from spreading to the village and spreading to the athletes. So we were very, very pleased that we had the capacity to diagnose those infections very early, advise that team. We could then treat and manage that person, isolate them safely from the rest of their teammates, and then allow them to then, majority of times, be able to compete, provided they're out of that quarantine period. So that was very, very successful. And that's the best thing you can do for an athlete, allow them to compete at their best. What sort of facility did you have down there? Because I can imagine you'd almost have a makeshift hospital-style facility where athletes would come in either with a headache, a splinter, through to some serious um, concerns about potential injuries. It's a large facility which has popped up. It's like a pop-up hospital which uh, requires a great deal of planning over three, four years, uh, is built and then uh, is used for three weeks and then um, disappears. It's uh, it's a very uh, ephemeral sort of thing. But it was a wonderful facility, uh, beautifully designed by a team that I worked with, and it provides the vast amount of the care that the athletes need in the village. Uh, we were lucky that the village was actually virtually co-located with the Gold Coast University Hospital. So we had a fantastic tertiary facility uh, right next door, the closest that a hospital's ever been to the Commonwealth Games Village. So that was fantastic. So we could transfer anyone who was seriously ill or seriously injured. And also we had right next door uh, a private hospital as well. And that private hospital provided us with our MRI and CT scanner uh, so that we could do imaging that day for athletes who needed acute imaging provided. What was the most common injury or complaint that occurred over the Commonwealth Games? So from the point of view of the athletes, the most common uh, things are obviously, as I said, 70 to 75% of the things we treat uh, are musculoskeletal or sporting injuries. And of those, uh, most of those are muscular or ligamentous injuries. So it would be an acute sprain or an acute muscle tear, or it could often be an acute on chronic thing. So someone who's got an existing problem that's niggling along with a back or particularly hamstrings, particularly in sprinters and, and anyone who runs in team sports, they're often teetering on the edge of 
injury because they do so much training. Uh, they they have to manage, they try and manage obviously recovery times, but that's the real art of, of, of training someone for high performance is they're often teetering on the edge of, of an injury and it's that skill in managing that. And many athletes um, will come to a games with some niggling uh, injuries because if you're doing that much training, that's sort of the way that you live. And so most of it is obviously uh, ligamentous or or uh, muscular. Um, most of it's not fractures and, and bony injuries. Most of it is is not, um, luckily, you know, serious injuries like head and spine and so on. So we didn't have any of those uh, serious head or neck injuries, thank goodness, although we were prepared and obviously ready to treat those if they occurred. Did you also have to take into consideration that you have athletes and spectators coming from so many different countries around the world with um, some developing and, and others that don't have the same vaccination regime that we have in this country. Did that all also have to be considered when you were planning for the Commonwealth Games? It is a big consideration and it was something that we had numbers of conversations about in our medical planning for the Games. Uh, we are, in Australia and in Queensland, we have a very good proactive vaccination program, which is available to everyone uh, free of charge for all of the um, the common uh, vaccine-preventable uh, diseases. Those programs are not available and certainly not widely available in many countries. They simply don't have the, the capacity, the financial capacity or the resources to provide that. So we know that vaccination rates in a number of those countries are much lower than they are here. We did look at were there ways we could assist athletes to become vaccinated prior to them coming to Australia, but that proved, I guess, a logistical uh, difficulty. And vaccinating someone when they arrive is obviously, uh, there's obviously small risk that they might get a small uh, minor uh, vaccine reaction, which could affect their performance, or and obviously generally that doesn't mean the vaccine is going to be working in time and by the time it's working they're actually back home again. So we were highly aware that they're more likely to actually have unimmunised athletes coming whereas the majority of the athletes in uh, for example the Australian team uh, certainly have access to vaccination the majority of those would have been fully vaccinated that would be part of their program. So we did see a number of um, instances of vaccine preventable uh, diseases and they um, were managed obviously with uh, notification, early notification, quarantine from the rest of their team. And, and then most of those were actually able to compete. A few of them had to return home because they developed an, an infectious disease which prevented them from competing, which is a real tragedy uh, when we know that um, they could have actually had that prevented with a simple vaccine. So we should be very grateful, I think, that we do have a wonderful vaccine program here in, in Australia that is open to everybody. The interesting thing, um, the Commonwealth Games was beautiful to watch from a spectator's perspective because we had um, a lot of para-athletes also competing and, and um, um, stealing our hearts as, as they um, took their gold, silver and bronze or even just finished. But was that an extra consideration that you have to um, do from your role when you're considering these athletes? One of the magic things about the Commonwealth Games is that actually para-athletes are incorporated into the program of sport with uh, athletes who are, able, who are able-bodied. And that's the thing that the athletes who come to the Commonwealth Games say they love the most. They don't have a separate event, unlike the Olympic Games, where they have a, a Paralympics two weeks after the normal Olympic Games. Uh, they actually are embedded within the, the Games. And we had approximately 300 para-athletes come to uh, Gold Coast, which was the largest para-athlete program that's been available in the Commonwealth Games to date. Uh, and they were able to compete in seven sports. So we had uh, you know, cyclists with vision impairment who did the tandem cycling. Uh, we had, obviously, uh, wheelchair 
triathletes racing on the track, but also racing uh, in the marathon as well, and swimmers. And so one of the things that I found was an absolute joy was going to the uh, the pool uh, three of the nights for the swimming, and we had each evening two uh, para events embedded within the program, treated exactly the same as any other event on the program, uh, receiving a gold medal, which is included exactly the same in the tally for that team uh, so that those para-athletes are part of that team. They're not considered separate from the team. And that was uh, fantastic. And we certainly had one of our uh, ex-students um, here, uh, Brendan Hall, who's one of our students as well at, at HM, who won a gold medal. It was wonderful to see Brendan competing that night as well. And Lakeisha so, Patterson was and another Patterson one. And Lakeisha Patterson, that's right. So there <laughs> were, and there are numbers of you know our wonderful um, athletes here at, at UQ. So... That is a fantastic thing that it's actually an embedded program. It's treated exactly the same. It's great to go. I got out early in the morning before I went off to work to see the uh, the wheelchair marathoners go past, uh, sitting with Kurt Fernley going past uh, in the morning as well along the, the beautiful front there at, at the Gold Coast in the morning sun. So it's fantastic to have those athletes competing within the program, but it does mean that they have some additional uh, medical needs that uh, you need to, to cater for. Uh, you, so you try and have uh, a number of clinicians who do have expertise in treating para-athletes uh, uh, because they have additional concerns, particularly wheelchair athletes who have problems about you know, temperature control and, and getting injuries when they don't have sensation and other particular concerns, bladder control and so on like that. And also from the point of view of not just their body, but their wheelchairs and their prostheses. And sometimes you find the athletes are more worried about their wheelchair being damaged because that's prevents them from competing if it's not in good shape than sometimes their bodies even. So they, they'll make sure that they uh, uh, get their wheelchair up to speed so they can actually go and compete the next day. So one of the uh, facilities that's provided within the uh, Commonwealth Games Village is a wheelchair and prosthesis repair facility, which is a giant uh, shipping container which opens up into, a, into actually a facility that can be transported around the world. And that allows them to have wheelchairs prepared uh, overnight so they can compete the next day, wheelchairs modified if they're having difficulties with that. And also prostheses uh, modified. And some of the uh, the guys there who were doing that work were very kind. And, and there are a couple of athletes who came from certainly some of the uh, less well-resourced nations and they made them up some new prostheses for them to be, uh, to be using both in their normal daytime but also at games time because they don't have the same access to the technology that, that our own athletes have. You've worked at a lot of major sporting events. How do they compare to one another and do you have a favourite? Well, obviously, working at the Melbourne 2006 Commonwealth Games was also a, a fantastic uh, highlight of uh, my uh, life, I guess, to be involved there. I was lucky enough to work at the Melbourne Sports and Aquatic Centre, and the highlight for that was to be able to actually work on pool deck for most of the swimming finals there for the Commonwealth Games. From the point of view of being a sports clinician, it was fantastic to be able to uh, work with some of the elite swimmers from Australia, but also a number of the other Commonwealth countries who were current world champions and Olympic champions, and also uh, the divers as well. Some of the Australian diving team who went on then to win Olympic gold and, and, and uh, other medals as well. So it was fantastic for me, with swimming being my sport, to be able to uh, spend the time there, sitting on the pool deck, being available to the athletes and, and treating athletes both pre and post uh, heats and, and finals. And also at the uh, 
aquatic centre there, they had other sports as well, which was great that I wasn't as au fait with. So also getting to, to go down at times and, and look after some of the table tennis players and, and the squash players. It was wonderful to see the, the, the plethora of sports that you have available at a multi-sport event, which is, is really special uh, rather than just, you know, obviously a single sport event. So that was just a fantastic opportunity for me to be able to be with my favourite sport, with my uh, to see the Australian team, who at that stage I think probably the Australian women were probably the best women's, pretty close to being the best women's swimming team in the world at that stage with some of the absolute superstars, most of whom were Queenslanders as well, uh, if I can put in my state of origin uh, hat. And it was just wonderful to see them all compete at their best pull out the, the times they needed just when they needed them and to see someone able to do that, now that's the sign of a true champion, uh, despite some of them have, having illnesses and obviously injuries, to actually see them come and compete and perform, uh, knowing some of the things on behind the scenes. So that was an absolute highlight to work at, at Melbourne 2006. The other, I guess, the experience of, of working with the A-League soccer for a decade I was uh, working with uh, the Brisbane Roar and uh, involved in providing medical coverage for the opposing visiting teams when they uh, come to play the, the Brisbane Roar at uh, Suncorp Stadium. And the, the wonderful thing about that was, I guess, developing um, a relationship uh, with um, the, the physios that used to look after those teams when they come to visit. So some of my fellow um, clinicians uh, who were, you know, very highly trained sports physios that we're lucky to have in this country. And also some of the, get to know some of the coaches and some of the players each time they came to visit and play once or twice a year. And it was very interesting uh, to be able to actually, I guess, sit in on the team uh, meetings and see some of the styles of some of some of the coaches in the way they, uh, from a sports psychology point of view, would uh, would would manage their team, rev up their team, or calm their team down, and try and motivate their team to their best performance. So I found it was a unique experience to be able to sit with a different team each week or every second week and uh, sit with the team, be a part of the team, and to actually see the way they, uh, I guess, trained, prepared, warmed up uh, and managed themselves, whether they're doing well or, or weren't doing so well. So it was always interesting to go back to a dressing room and there was always a vast amount of noise if the uh, result was in their favour and it was terribly quiet if it was uh, not the way they wanted the result to go. Uh, you know, it's, it's tough. You have to travel to another city, you're away for a couple of days, away from your family and your friends, uh, and then to sort of get a get a loss as a, an elite team and, and sit down and have to reflect on that and then still have to turn up next morning and go and do your recovery and, and then, then travel home. And so it's a, it's a tough job being a professional athlete. So your, your heart sort of goes out to some of the uh, the guys in the team and when they've had a tough time and they haven't their fans haven't been particularly good to them as well. So it was a wonderful experience to see a whole range of teams, how they... I guess, held themselves, how they trained and, and how they managed both victory and defeat. You and some of your colleagues recently published a piece on the importance of exercise as medicine in the Medical Journal of Australia. Can you tell me about that? So like a lot of areas of medicine, uh, we know a lot about the benefits of exercise for health. So we know that it has benefits generally as a preventer of um, things like cardiovascular disease and diabetes, etc., and also it has benefits as a specific prescription for particular conditions once you have them, such as preventing falls in people who are getting a little bit frail, managing your osteoarthritis of your knee by improving your muscular control of your knee. So we know there's lots of evidence out there that this university and all the other universities around the country churn out every week of the year. But the problem is there's an evidence practice gap in that we know a lot of that information, but it doesn't then get necessarily translated into day-to-day uh, practice. So certainly 
one of the issues is that we do have busy, crowded medical curriculums and I guess each area uh, has a whole lot of stuff they want to educate our undergraduate medical students with, this university included. But we don't do very much uh, in our curriculum and also around most of the country in musculoskeletal or sports medicine. So we don't equip our medical students as undergraduates and also I think uh, as postgraduates as well, we don't do as much as we should do with our clinicians in looking at the benefits of exercise prescription for health, both as a preventer and also as a treatment, as we should. So we reach for um, prescription pads to write medications. We, we refer people off to for surgical opinions about those sorts of treatments. But we know, if you watch some of the recent shows on Insight, had a fantastical program recently on, on prescription of exercise for managing a lot of back pain. We know that if you see a physio or an exercise physiologist, uh, you can avoid needing um, of medications that you're using, have a much better quality of life and, and avoid or postpone surgery for your back if you have exercise programs. So we believe strongly that there needs to be uh, improved ed- education of medical students at an undergraduate level and also our clinicians at a postgraduate level for the non-drug treatments of a lot of these chronic conditions, both prevention and treatment. And one of those things we should be prescribing is targeted specific exercise and using, in addition, teaching people the behaviour modification techniques they need in order to assist someone to take up that lifestyle because you, you can't just tell someone to go and do something. You have to assist them to actually undertake that as well. So there's a lot of other techniques that you need rather than just understanding the evidence. But we need to actually increase the use of exercise as a medicine uh, in our community. And do you think that's going to be a long-term cultural change that will need to take place before we start seeing doctors sort of write you a script for perhaps a a pill as well as some exercises you need to do to improve your condition or illness? So certainly there there has been work done in that. So back in the 90s there were were things like a green prescription which came out of of, uh, Auckland, I think, out of um, New Zealand, uh, and uh, Steve Blair in the US was was doing work on rat, actually writing a physical prescription uh, for patients uh, or his clients uh, with regards to exercise. Uh, so that sort of work has sort of been done. Uh, it, it, look, it is tricky because it takes time to do that. It's easier to write medications and so on. And clinicians need to feel confident about doing that, whether that's getting someone to, to to assisting to stop smoking or, or lose weight or to um, to increase their exercise because it's a longer-term prospect. Uh, you can give someone a prescription for a medication and sometimes they don't take it, but you know you can give it to them and, and a number of them will take it and that's very simple often. Uh, but it takes a lot longer uh, for someone to actually change their lifestyle, uh, maybe a lot more like a one- to two-year prospect to do that. And so you've got to hang in there uh, working with them over the long term and that takes a bit of... Um, fortitude and persistence to do that. You're also a practicing doctor. And one thing I have learned from having doctors in my family is that at every party or social event, somebody wants to either show them or ask them about something weird. Do you have that experience as well? Yes, I do. Uh, so I think it's a, a uh, an occupational hazard, shall we say? And I'm sure the physios get someone telling about their back pain, and the the podiatrists get people asking to look at your feet. So maybe the dentists get the, the the teeth as well. Have a look at this. So it is an occupational hazard, and it is a bit of an occupational hazard even at, at work at uh, one of the hospitals where I work, because often you'll get people coming to you 
asking general questions about that or doing scripts. I think it's really important that you – it's okay to um, look at something that um, uh, you, can, you can listen to the story, you can – give some general advice. But if you think it's a, a significant problem, it's important that you direct people back to their regular clinician or ask them to go and find or help them to find a regular clinician. You don't want to be treating family or close friends ethically for significant conditions. It's okay if it's something very, very simple and you can reassure them about something that, that's very minor uh, or a skin spot that's obviously benign and nothing to worry about but if it's anything significant at all it's important that you if you have a personal relationship with somebody uh, that you don't become their their de facto their clinician uh, it's important you know you need to be writing notes about these things and recording them and you can't be doing that at parties you might have had a couple of drinks and that's not the best way to be treating someone so I think it can be fraught with danger and we certainly do have uh, good guidelines on this from the, the college the medical colleges from the medical board it's important that you well sometimes it's something simple you can just give some general advice about but it's important not to become that person's uh, treating doctor when you have a close relationship with them. It's certainly an, it's always an interesting thing on the plane when you get asked to, uh, I can't remember the number of times I've been asked on a plane to go and uh, see someone that's unwell on a plane. And that is also an issue if you've had, again, you know, um, a couple of drinks. Um, you know, how, and you're also a bit sleepy and just been woken up. So you need to, to make sure you feel comfortable that you can um, assist someone. But obviously if, if you're the only person there and you're the person with the most potentially the most expertise, although often there's another doctor or a nurse or someone on the plane, it's important that you do then obviously try and assist the crew, but uh, it's important that you make sure that you don't feel that you're you know, impaired uh, if you're asked to do, to do something for somebody. Does that happen because you're listed as a, on the passenger um, manifest as Dr Anita? Or is have you been on a plane and heard, is there a doctor yes. on this plane? Yes. So, And it's quite, it happens not infrequently. So certainly, yes, sometimes people, if your boarding pass has you listed as doctor, um, they'll start, you, often the crew will ask you when you walk in, oh, are you a medical doctor or are you a PhD? Uh, so they know whether you're a clinician or you're a, you know, a researcher or an academic. But sometimes it's because they put a general call out over the... Uh, plane uh, or the train. I've been on trains in Europe and same things happened. And uh, so it is, it's not infrequent, I find. And, and it, look, it is, um, it is sometimes a bit scary because you're, it's, you know, it's dark, you're a bit sleep deprived, you're out of your comfort zone, you don't have any equipment with you. And often they have very little equipment on the plane. And, and sometimes I'll ask you, make a big call, you know, are we going to divert the plane? I remember one time, you know, will we be going to Adelaide or will we be going on a destination in Perth? And you're going to decide for, oh, you know, Everyone on board. 250 people on board, whether no they get Easter in Adelaide or, or Perth. And uh, so you do have to make a, sometimes a, a reasonable call for the safety of that, that individual um, and deciding, you know, whether that person's safe to continue or do we need to go to turn back or go to another, uh, to go to an, an alternative airport. So it does involve that. And certainly the crew are often in a tough situation with that. So it is always good to be able to offer them assistance, um, but um, making sure that you're uh, capable of doing so. Well, thanks so much for sharing all your insights. We're going to close this episode with a short segment that we call Spare Change, in which we get to know you a bit better with some rapid-fire questions. So are you ready? I'm ready. Great. So first question, what is the one fact that listeners wouldn't know about you? I'm a bit of a Doctor Who nerd. 
<laughs> so I've been watching it since I was, yeah, well, not, sorry, not right from the beginning because I'm not quite old enough, but I certainly watched it. And uh, and if you want to know, Tom Baker's my favourite doctor, like everybody else, I suspect. We prefer Closely term, followed by David Tennant. We prefer the term Hoovarians. Hoovarians. <laughs> oh, yes, with the new show on ABC, of course, yes. I was about to say, Katie, at this moment, is just fist pumping the air. <laughs> <laughs> so moving on, what is the one question you're sick of being asked? Well, at the game's time, it was, oh, good, you'll be able to get me tickets. <laughs> and I had no control over that whatsoever. Oh, that's funny. So if you could go back in time by 10 years, what advice would you give your younger self? I think uh, uh, to relax a bit more and not, you know, take it a bit easy and in the sense of not worrying about, about you know, ticking the boxes, seeing, getting things done so much. I guess a bit more mindfulness, uh, which I try to do now. But So certainly I think enjoying things as they come along and making sure that you're making the most of, of what you're doing um, at the time. Now, who or what is your biggest influence in life? So probably my dad, I would imagine. Uh, like many people, I think it's, it's, it's significant family members. Uh, because he's able to... He, he continues to be excited by new knowledge. He's always interested in uh, in learning uh, new things and thinking widely, reading widely, uh, chatting to people from all walks of life, uh, having respect, I guess, for everyone, no matter what role or what job that they had, and being, um, yeah, just being kind and courteous and, and nice to people. Fabulous. Now, this, most people tell us, is the hardest question of all. If you had to choose a piece of music that would best describe you, which song would you play? I'm a bit of a classical music nerd, a bit like being a Doctor Who nerd, so I uh, um, I won't be going for a, a song. In fact, I'm usually, um, my colleagues all know that I can't, can't even name them in trivia, the, it's not the modern songs. But from the point of view of a song that might describe some of my passions in life, um, Pictured an exhibition, which is a piece of music by uh, a Russian composer, Mussorgsky, and it describes him going around looking at uh, a series of pictures at uh, an exhibition over a century ago uh, with one of his, his Russian colleagues and looking at the art and then working his way through the gallery. So I guess it combines for me some of my passions outside of sport and medicine, which is uh, classical music and, uh, and visual art. Well, that's the end of another episode of UQ Changemakers. If you want to learn more about Dr. Anita Green, visit uq.edu.au forward slash changemakers, where you can also subscribe to Changemakers magazine. I'm Belinda McDougall. And I'm Katie Rowney. Our podcast was produced by Michael Jones and Jessica McGaw. If you enjoyed this episode, tell your friends or colleagues, leave a review on iTunes or email us at changemakers at uq.edu.au. If you want to create change, tune in next time when we interview another inspiring member of the UQ community. Thanks for listening.